Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. Andrew Musgrove here. We're bringing back an old favorite during this international break. I'm joined by John Gibson. And it is time for Gibbo's Corner. This week, we saw the funeral of Manchester United and England legend Sir Bobby Charlton. The player, some believe, is the best this country has ever produced, died last month at the age of 86. In this episode, Gibbo will take us back in time to look back on Ashton's finest son and how he went from kicking a ball in the back street to winning the World Cup with England. Gibbo was lucky enough to be very close to the Charlton family, from Sir Bobby, his brother Jack and their mum Sissy, the driving force behind the pair. We're going to hear the stories from Northumberland to Wembley and beyond as we pay tribute to a legend of the game. This is Gibbo's Corner, a tribute to Sir Bobby Charlton. John, I hope you're well. It's always bittersweet doing these sort of episodes because it means, sadly, someone has passed away. But what it does allow us to do is to reflect on their time here and their impact on the world of football and the local community. The tributes to Sir Bobby have been far and wide lovely person in a football genius I think pretty much sums up what everyone has had to say just tell our listeners from your point of view what kind of person was Bobby like and just how good was he on the pitch Sir Bobby Charlton no less um, but I prefer to call him War Bobby because he was essentially uh, a son of Ashington soil, you mentioned that he was England's greatest ever footballer and I don't think anybody could doubt that and He's in the, the, the world's elite. The, you can count them on one hand. Pele, Maradona, Cruyff and Bobby Charlton. Uh, and he is good. He is as good as that. Other footballers, English footballers got knighted when you think of Matthews, Finney, Hurst, Brooking. But he was a knight apart from all of the knights. I mean, you know, Gerard, Lampard, the golden ge- generation, nowhere near him. Nowhere near him. Northeast hotbed, Gaza, totally different sort of player, wonderful player. Funnily enough, probably the closest to him would be Peter Beardsley, in as much as what was Bobby Charlton? What was Peter? Was he a striker? Was he a midfielder? Well, he was actually both. Uh, both of them were both. He could create goals and he took goals. You know, it is at a time in life, uh, Andrew, when the Pitches were knee deep in mud, and the ball was as heavy as a cannonball. This fellow was the perfect striker of a ball. Virtually every goal he scored was long range. It it 
absolutely ripped the back of the net off. He scored 249 goals for Manchester United in 758 appearances. Those figures are absolutely staggering. He lived through Munich. It scored him for life. Not physically, mentally. It scored him for life and we almost lost him to the game because of that. He was a World Cup winner, a European Cup winner. One of the most famous brothers in world football. Um, just a sensational player. And perhaps summed up by his funeral this this week. Uh, just this week, his funeral, not only was it a sort of who's who of football greatness, but the future king, William, was at his funeral. Now, for an ex-Ashington Pitt lad to have the future king attend your funeral tells you how extra special he is. And Bobby was exactly that. He certainly was. And before we go right back to the start, to the streets of Ashton, I just want to get your your take on on you know the the, the news that he when he died. Where were you? What was your reaction? We know he'd been ill for 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 a wee while, but you know that aside, it still comes as a little bit of a shock, doesn't it? When you hear about yeah. the legend, a legend yes. of the game passing away, it always does. It always does. In this case, we knew it. We knew the end was near. Um, he was suffering from dementia. <clears throat> he was in a care home. He was in his mid-80s. <clears throat> he had been too ill to attend Jack Charlton's funeral uh, when that took place up here in the northeast. That warned us what was to come. And it's almost, but still, it was almost unthinkable. When you see those tree trunk legs, they, they. The power of the man, the elegance of the man. He didn't leave a footprint in the mud. He glided over the mud. He didn't seem to, to touch us where he could walk on water. And he, he was such an elegant, wonderful player. Nothing prepares you. You know it's coming, but you like to head it off. And the day that it does come, it hits you like a sledgehammer. And um, especially when he's one of your own. And he is one of ours. And when will we get... We produce wonderful footballers and we continue to produce them. You've just got to look at Walls End Boys Club, the list of people that's that's made it into the big time, 90-odd of them. They still keep coming, but they don't come any better or even close to Bobby Charlton. And, of course, the big thing, Andrew, was that he come from Northeast Royalty. The Milburn clan... <coughs> forgive me. The Milburn clan was something special. I mean, when you... You go and the key to it all was Sissy, who I got to know ever so well. That is that is Jack and Bobby's mum. Uh, she she was a wonderful lady. She had sparkling dancing eyes. Uh, they mirrored the fun she got from life, and it was her family that produced this wonderful clan of footballers from Ashington. And um, <clears throat> she often said to me, you know, she. She cursed the day she was born a lass because she, she loved football so much she should have been a lad. And when you think... And, and she loved football so much she coached the local side of kids. The mum coached the local side of kids. The dad, Bob, um, wasn't football-orientated at all. Quite amazing when you think he was the dad of Bobby and Jack Charlton, isn't it? But Bob, Bob just sat in the corner quietly and sissy ruled the roost and told the stories and dad was a boxer yeah he was a local boxer who went down to paddy's market which was a place in ashington 
uh, where it was the boxing bulls won and you could challenge the local guy, the local boxing hero to see if you could go three rounds with him. Bob challenged him, he got knocked out in, in this second round, but he was still given a quid for his for his efforts. And that quid, he spent 17 sixpence of it, because we're talking old money, of course, 17 sixpence on a wedding ring, and he spent two and six on a curb for the fireplace. Now, without that wedding ring, which he won in the boxing, it, we wouldn't have had Jackie and Bobby. Um, so it was money well spent, I would say. Uh, the amazing thing is that Sissy Charlton, as everybody knew her and loved her, was actually Elizabeth Milburn, and her family was quite incredible. I mean, her dad was Tanner Milburn, who was a goalkeeper in local football. She had four brothers, all of whom played league football. That's why she cursed being a girl, because her four brothers, there was Jack Milburn, who played at Leeds, George Milburn, who played at Leeds and Chesterfield, Jim Milburn, who played at Leeds, and Stan Milburn, who played at Chesterfield and, and Leicester. And of course, out of that, we also had the finest of the lot, original finest of the lot, which is Jackie Milburn, uh, followed by Sissy's too. So that was quite the family. Yeah, quite the conveyor belt of football and stars, royalty as you put it. And I think everyone's probably seen the picture, John, of uh, Sissy and, and, and Jack and Bobby playing football yeah. um, just outside you know, their, their, their gate. And it's a wonderful picture, which just sums up, as you mentioned there, the kind of, the kind of fun that they all had and, and how important football was to that, that, that fun growing up. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, they played out in the back lane, as, as I did as a kid. You played out in, in the back lane with a tennis ball or whatever ball you could get a hold of and I mean early days that was what uh, Bobby and Jack did I mean uh, Bobby was two and a half years younger than Jack um, it's incredible but when they weren't playing in the back lane they went down and played on the local field and that was called Wembley can you imagine that? A local a local field in Ashington's called Wembley when you think of what it produced at Wembley with both of them winning the World Cup at Wembley um, but they called it Wembley, and they, I mean, both of them told me tales about those days. The goalposts were the traditional way with kids coming out of pit villages, and like me, born in the West End of Newcastle, all the courts were the goalposts. They were the goalposts, and they used to start playing at half past nine in the morning and play all day through till tea time. And every now and again during the day, a couple of the lads would nip off to have their dinner which is really their lunch, but they called it their dinner in those days, and so did as a band, nipped off for their dinner and come back and join the, the games again. And, um, I mean, they were, they were chalk and cheese as brothers. Bobby and Jack were chalk and cheese. Not to look at, facially, facially, you could tell they were brothers. But, I mean, you looked at the, the physical build. Uh, one was big, gangly, and the other was built like a, a powerful, powerful, elegant footballer that he did he become, um, but the, the whole attitude to life generally was different. I mean, Bobby was always destined to be a superstar from the earliest age. I mean, I remember Sissy telling me, uh, John, I always knew that Bobby was going to be a footballer, but I was staggered that Jack became a footballer. 
because she said she always said that he had legs that were so long, Jack, they couldn't go under the under his uh, desk at school. Whereas Jackie, he was all knobbly knees and ungainly. Um, Jackie was Bob <coughs> from the early days. Wonderful body swerve, panther-like grace. Uh, <coughs> it was quite. Um, there was quite quite a, a contrast as people jack was a huge mixer with people um he was like his mother bobby was very shy <clears throat> and the consequence of him being shy was a lot of people thought early in his life that he was big-headed because he was quiet and because he was so good you automatically thought he was big-headed he wasn't um he was just shy but uh, I mean, I always remember Sissy. I used to say, "Well, tell me about Bobby when he was when he was a bairn, When Bobby was a bairn. he says, "She said, you know what, John? He never got into mischief. Um, not like Jackie, who was always about the lasses and bird nesting. He was always bird nesting and uh, having fun with the lasses. But Bobby never got any mischief. And she said about him, he was always known as Little Lord Fontelboy." And, and that's because he was this sort of quiet, studious uh, guy who really only got um, uh, become alive when a football was thrown to him. Yet he was the intelligent one as well. And um, there's there's times in in life when we almost lost uh, Bobby the football. Uh, and the earlier Munich was the the huge example, obviously. Uh, the earliest example was the fact that he went to Ashton, the Ashton Junior School called Hurst North and he played in every representative side right up to England schoolboys. What a surprise. He was that good to start with. But the trouble is that when he came through, he, went, he uh, qualified to go to, he won a scholarship to go to Morpeth Grammar School. Now, that's when we almost lost him because Morpeth Grammar School in those days was a rugby-playing school. They didn't play football. And here was a kid who was playing for England boys who won it to a grammar school that didn't play football. It horrified um, both him and his teachers. There was a teacher called Norman McGuinness who was the school teacher at his local club. When he found out about his protege not being able to play football because he was going to, to Morpeth Grammar. He had word with the headmaster, who was a fellow called James Hamilton, uh, who worked tirelessly behind the scenes trying to get Bobby switched from his school switch. Sissy wrote regularly to the local authorities pointing out that this was a guy who was playing for England boys, could be a superstar, what he would mean to Ashington, what he could do for Ashington in the future, but he could be lost in the game. Eventually, all this lobbying got him switched and he went to Bedleton Grammar School instead, which was a footballing school. And so we didn't lose, we didn't lose Bobby. Uh, and thank goodness for that. Jack didn't qualify for, for uh, to, to go to Morpeth Grammar. And he just continued on his on his merry way. And uh, amazingly, you know, people think he was a late developer, but he actually got a, a league club ahead of Bobby. Can you believe that? It shook uh, Sissy to the core. 
actually Leeds come in for him and took him before Bobby's future was confirmed. I mean, the fascinating thing in the old days, I got to know Sissy so well and she was so warm and enthusiastic and steeped in football with the Melbourne clan and her brothers and war Jackie. And um, one day she went in the back. She said, hold on a minute, John, I'll, I'll show you something. She went in the back and she'd come out with this scrapbook, what looked like a scrapbook. And I thought, hello, she's going to tell us she's kept the scrapbook of Bobby and Jack in their young days, etc., etc." But no, it was actually Bobby's scrapbook. Bobby Charlton, when he was a kid, when he was just uh, representing the county in Northumberland and playing for England schoolboys, and written on the front, it said, the Charlton scraps. The Charlton scraps on the front of the book. When you went inside, every little report that had been done on him as a kid and, and uh, on his very early days were pasted into this scrapbook, and alongside it were some... Ticket stubs, match stubs, etc., etc., from his games. And uh, I'll just read you one because this was interesting. And it was a, a look into the what Bobby was all about that people rarely saw in later in life, the Nationals didn't bother with. But there was a footballer called Charlie Buckingham. When I was a kid, he used to produce the Charlie Buchan Annual, which was an annual football book, which all kids got. He played for Sunderland Arsenal in England at inside forward, Charlie Buchan. And he, England had drawn with Wales at Wembley 3-3. And Buchan had written in a newspaper article that only two players had impressed him in that England team. One was Bobby. And this is what Buchan said at the time, he said, and I quote you Charlie Buchan's words, Inside left, Bob Charlton from Ashington uh, was always in place to receive a pass and start an attack. Former Chelsea manager Billy Beryl said to me, this lad fascinates me with his play. I expect it was because he was a lot like Len Golden, the English international inside forward, in his positioning and clever use of the ball. Uh, Bobby scored two of the three England goals that day. And Dennis Compton, the very famous Dennis Compton, that played football for Arsenal and played cricket, even more spectacularly with England, uh, also paid huge praise to, to uh, Bobby in the same match. Um, and all this was pasted into the book meticulously by Bobby, who thought at one time, incidentally, that he might well become a journalist. And which is why he kept the scrapbook, etc., etc., before he realized that he was quite the most unique talent in this country. He thought he would become a journalist, so obviously he was trying his hand early doors by writing in his scrapbook things about his early play. But as I say, the, the, the funny thing about talking about the genius of Bobby in those early days, Jack used to play for his local YMCA team. Big Jack John. And Bobby went along this day to watch Jack play for the YMCA. When he got to the ground, the opposition were a man light. So Bobby said, okay, I'll play. So he played for the side opposing his brother. And the inevitable happened, didn't it? Bobby scored the winning goal 
for the other side against Jack's team and Jack threw the biggest throw you could ever wish to meet uh, and was kicking the courts round and everything in playing war with our kid who dared to go and play for the opposition and score the winning goal. So there was always that competitive edge to them. But um, at that stage, they were very close, uh, as brothers can be. Later on, and we'll talk about it later on, it became a lot more difficult, but it was, it was very close. The, the interesting thing as well is part of growing up, inevitably coming Andrew from the family they did come from, uh, they were going to have comparisons and, and unique opportunities to progress through the relations. And one of the great things they did by at that stage, um, Sissy's younger brother, Stan, was back playing for Ashington at Portland Park, which is Ashington football's ground. And... Um, Bobby and Jack used to go along the game and used to stand behind the goal watching Jack play so that every time a shot went wide, they got a kick at the ball and a flick at the ball and put it back on the field uh, for the game to go under, get underway. And they also inevitably followed Uncle Jack, as they called War Jackie. In fact, he was a second cousin. But they knew him. Everybody, we all did it, didn't we? Everybody we knew was my uncle, sort of thing. So um, what it became a ritual that they would have a day out when Newcastle United were playing at home to watch Jackie play. And the ritual would be, um, and both Bobby told me about it and, and Jack, uh, the, the ritual was that Sissy would give them half a crown, two and sixpence to me and you, um, when Bobby was around eight or nine years old. Uh, and with that, the, this is how far off a crown went in those days, by the way. With that half crown apiece, they caught the bus from Ashington to the Haymarket in Newcastle. When they got off at the Haymarket, this is on a Saturday when Newcastle were open, they would nip round the corner to the British home stores for dinner, is they say. Again, lunch we would probably say and they would walk they would walk down with a tray down the line of food getting the dollop on the plate as they went down sit and eat that when they finished that they would hoof round the corner for into the big market and up to st james's park stood on the popular side which is the opposite side to where the press box and in the director's box is these days on the other side was known as the popular side they used to get in there and it was all standing no seats of course so they used to push their way through so they could get closest to the halfway line and as near the front as possible so they could... And Bobby said, we literally saw stars in our eyes because everybody to them was a star. It was Jackie Milburn, it was it was Joe Harvey, it was George Robledo, and then, of course, it was Matthews and Finney and everybody on the, on the other side. And they would be transfixed. And after the game, they would come out just across the road from St. James's Park, where the metro station is now, the new St. James's Hall was there, which was the boxing hall. But on a Saturday night, and I remember this from being a band, on a Saturday night, they used to put wrestling on. So the, the Bobby and Jack would come out of St. James's Park, having watched War Jackie play, go across the road, going to the wrestling, watch the wrestling, which finished about half past nine at night, nip up to the Haymarket, jump on the bus, back home, 
and either dad or mum would be at the bus stop to meet them and walk them back home. And that was their introduction to the footballing life that, that lay ahead for, for them. And, um, you know, they, they were obsessed and lived their early life through the eyes of War Jackie. And I remember Bobby telling me, he said, um, in those days, as you know, there wasn't television in the way we know it nowadays. I mean, the, the, there was no sort of people didn't have television. They had radio and they listened to things on the radio. And the television news, as we know it now, used to appear on the newsreel in, in the cinemas. And, and Bobby said, when Jack got his first cap for England, playing for Newcastle United, first cap for England against Ireland, you couldn't watch it on the telly. You could just listen to the radio. And they had to wait until the newsreel appeared on the cinema and they rushed along to the cinema to see Jackie play in his first international match. And Bobby said, we actually got there too late and we missed the newsreel. So we had to sit all the way through the film, which we weren't bothered about, it was a film called The Red Shoes. Moira Shearer was starring in The Red Shoes, and they didn't want to see this, but they had to sit in the stalls all the way through The Red Shoes, waiting for the newsreel to come up again, because the thing just went on and on all day long. The newsreel come up so they could watch uh, Jack play on his international debut. I mean, um, happy, happy days. And who would have known what was to come with both the Charlton brothers following in War Jackie's footsteps? And, and you've mentioned there about the path Jack's career took, but maybe what, what people don't perhaps realise is that Sir Bobby Charlton actually wanted to head to Sunderland before Manchester United came along and, and picked them up. Yes, I mean it's only part of it's only part of the story that I'm not too keen on, uh, because you and you would have thought, would you not, that because of what War Jackie did at St James's Park, and because they went and watched all the games at St James's Park, that he that Bob, I'm talking about Bobby here, not Jack, uh, that Bobby would want to go because, funny enough, Jack did want to sign for Newcastle as a kid, Jack. Loved the tune, wanted to sign for the tune. Leeds come along. What a wonderful move that was from when you think how it worked out. But what the, the difference with Bobby, and it was Sissy that told the story, and she said Bobby would never admit it, but I'm going to tell you what really happened. And she said he, he wanted to sign for Sunderland. I said, he what? She said he wanted to sign for Sunderland. Now, the reason was that his hero was Len Shackleton. And he, diverting a little bit, I mean, it's amazing how these stories, they interlocked like a jigsaw. I mean, originally, and Shaq become a very close friend of mine, when we were on um, the uh, First Cup, Jones, uh, Shaq used to room with me. He was my roommate when we went and covered the First Cup games. But Jack, the first time Shaq had come up here, he signed for Newcastle and played in the same side as Jackie Milburn at Newcastle. If you remember from the history books, Andrew, his debut was quite sensational. It's the biggest win Newcastle United ever had. They, won, they scored 13 goals against Newport County. And by the way, they were both in the same division. It was a league game, not a cup game. I mean, you think now of Newport County being on the bottom sphere, Newcastle being on the top. They were in the same division. Newcastle 
scored 13 goals and Shaq who was a he become known as a goal maker rather than taker scored six on his debut for Newcastle but of course he made his real name at Sunderland in the Bank of England Sunderland side with Trevor Ford etc etc that's where he become a legend and when I when I spoke to Sissy about it she said um, our Bobby would never admit it but his hero was Shaq and she explained Shaq had a habit of pulling down his shirt sleeves over his hands while he was playing so his hands were up his short sleeves and he took out his shin pads often during a game and just rolled his socks down and she said all of a sudden subconsciously I'm watching Bobby playing and he's got his sleeves over his hands and he's got his shin pads out he was doing exactly what Shaq did um, and he therefore wanted to join Sunderland I mean it's quite incredible because he heard this day he was going to play for East Northumberland Boys. That's his district side when he had Ashen. He was playing for East Northumberland Boys and they were playing Heaven and Jarrah Boys at Heaven. I've actually got the date because it was in the Charlton Scraps that Sissy showed me. The date was February the 9th, 1953. It was in Charlton Scraps. And what thrilled Bobby is he heard that the Sunderland Scout was going to cover the game and he thought oh this is it i'm going to get to sunderland i'm going to become the next shack etc etc so he played the game and at the end of the game the sunderland scout made a beeline onto the pitch to talk to one of the players in the east northumberland side but it wasn't bobby charm it was a goalkeeper called ronnie Routledge. Can you imagine Sunderland signed, bless Ronnie Routledge, who I got to know and was a decent goalkeeper, but no well beater. And the, the Sunderland scout decided to sign Ronnie Routledge rather than Bobby Charlton. And Sissy told me the story. She said, Bobby was so hurt when he come off. Sissy was on the touchline watching because Sissy was the football one rather than Bob the dad. Sissy was watching. She says, Bobby was so hurt. He said to me, Mum, any club that comes along now, I'll sign for them. Now, the, the amazing thing was the club that actually come along next, and everybody wanted Bobby, but the club along that come along next was Manchester United. And what had happened there, there was a, a fella called Stuart Hemingway, who was a former Manchester grammar school boy, and he was headmaster at Jack School. Jack School, not Bobby School. He was headmaster at Jack School. And he had written to Old Trafford urging them to come and have a look at Bobby. Not to have a look at Jack, to come and have a look at Bobby. He was a former Manchester Grammar School lad, Stuart Hemingway. Amazing these names dig them out from the past and meant so much to the future of these players. As a consequence of that, Manchester United sent up their chief scout, Joe Armstrong, to have a look at Bobby. He took one look at Bobby in a match up here and went back to Old Trafford and said, this boy is going to be a world beater. We've got to get him. In the match he'd watched him in, the pitch was absolutely iced. There was thick fog. You could hardly see your hand in front of you. But the talent that was Bobby Charlton shone through like a beacon in this fog and on the ice. And Joe Armstrong said to the club, this is the man we want. So... Joe went, Joe Armstrong went to the Charlton house, talked to the family, and Bobby 
And mum and dad, Sissy and Bob, give their word he would go to Manchester United. No fewer than 18 other clubs approached the Charlton's for Bobby's signature between then and the time when he ended up at Manchester United. But they'd given their word uh, as a family that he would go to Manchester United, and he did. Um, so I said, the obvious to Sissy, I said, hey, but what about Newcastle? You know, he, he wanted to go to Sunderland, but War Jackie played at Newcastle. Bobby Charlton, dear me, you can't get a bigger ringing of bells about how good somebody is when he's playing for England schoolboys. It's not actually just, his light's not hidden under a bushel here. It's, he's out there in the open. I said, what about Newcastle wanting him? She said, to be truthful, she said, Newcastle only sent, there was a bloke called Ted Hughes who was in charge of the juniors. Newcastle ends, they used to be called in those days, the junior side, Ted Hughes. And he's, said Newcastle only sent him to have a look at Bobby after Bobby had agreed to go to Manchester United. They didn't show any interest prior to that. And consequently, she said, Jack, uh, Bobby had decided that um, he was happy to, uh, to go to Manchester United and he wasn't too fussed about Newcastle. Jack, on the other hand, Newcastle never approached uh, for Jack John. Leeds were about the only side that did that. And by Joe, didn't he do well for Leeds, by the way? They got and didn't Leeds do well for him. But um, she says, oh, Jack would have loved to have signed for Newcastle. Bobby wasn't too fussed where he went, but he said he would have loved. But Sunderland missed out on somebody that was desperate to go to them. Um, uh, and they took the goalkeeper instead, who never reached any particular heights at all. Yeah, a missed opportunity for both Sunderland and Newcastle. Uh, Bobby headed down then to the northwest to Manchester. He took up an apprenticeship as an electrical engineer as well before becoming a uh, professional in October 1954. And he didn't look back at all, did he? Uh, part of that fantastic side under Matt Busby. And, you know, they were becoming an absolute force. And then tragedy struck. The 1958 yeah. Munich air disaster, which you know to this day still breaks your heart when you read the news reports. Yeah. And obviously every year we pay tribute to those that we lost. And you know, we were very, very, very fortunate that Sir Bobby Charlton survived that disaster. Oh, I mean he survived it uh, without any serious physical injury, but the mental injuries, they 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 he was scarred for life, and we almost very much lost him to football, even though he survived. He lost all will, all desire to play football in the wake of that. Um, the significant day, February the 5th, 1958, Manchester United were playing Red Star in Belgrade. And um, they went 3-0 up by half-time. Inevitably, two Bobby Charlton specials, what a surprise, was two of the three goals. And even though Red Star came back and in the very last minute of the game equalised for a 3-3 draw, that was the game that marked the end of the Busby Babes. Because it's it, when you think of travel these days, it, it literally is so different. Can you believe you're only in Belgrade? And you're coming back to Manchester, 
But they had to actually stop stop in Munich to refuel the plane. The plane couldn't get. I mean, now you can fly to Australia nonstop, but the plane then couldn't get from Belgrade to Manchester in one go. And of course, this was the fatal. You know, a lot of young people probably think, well, wait a minute, the plane went to Belgrade, and they were coming home. How is it the Munich air disaster? But it's because they stopped over in a blizzard to get um, refueled and they were taken off in a blizzard and weren't able to get up and they come back and got off the plane again. And the second time they got up, but dear, dear, dear. Um, I mean, in that, six of the Manchester United Busby babes were killed, plus Duncan Edwards, who later died, wasn't killed automatically on the day, but later died, plus three Man U officials, and every journalist bar one died on, on that trip, and one of the journalists was Frank Swift, the legendary England goalkeeper, who would become a journalist, as Shaq did, as Jackie Milburn did later in life, and he was in the press pack, and every single member of the press pack died bar one, uh, a, a guy called Taylor who worked with me when I was in Fleet Street and he had a shortened leg as a result of the of the crash um, it, the staggering thing about it was and it shows how different times are now and the way they were then you know you've got uh, um, laptops, you've got um, uh, mobile phones None of that in those days. I mean, Sissy heard that her son was in a, a fatal air crash through the Evening Chronicle, believe it or not. Uh, the Evening Chronicle phoned the, the local news agent in Ashington that lived near, nearest to Sissy and asked him to go down to Sissy's house and warn her about the Manchester United plane before she saw the placards, because in those days, remember they used to put placards and tie them onto um, onto lampposts, advertising what was in the paper. They didn't want the Chronicle didn't want Sissy to see that, and and absolutely crumple on the spot. We didn't know the paper didn't know at that stage whether Bobby had survived or not. They just knew the plane had gone down, but they asked the news agent to go down and see Sissy, which is what the news agent did. Now, even harsher than that was Jack. How did Jack find out about Bobby? Jack was training at with Leeds United at on the day, and after training, was just being in the shower, was in the dressing room, getting changed. Rach Carter, the famous Rach Carter, the, the legendary footballer, was the manager of Leeds at the time. He walked into the dressing room and just announced that the Manchester United plane had crashed and walked out. Now, had he forgot Jack was in that dressing room? Or, or did he not think? What happened? What possessed him? I, it wasn't maliciousness, we don't know, but can you imagine Jack suddenly hearing that a plane had gone down and knowing that his, his brother was on? And he immediately left the ground and had to get two trains to Newcastle and then the bus up from Newcastle to Ashington to um, to be with Sissy. I mean, 
in those days you didn't know you know communication was a whole different game bobby the incredible thing was that while people had died all around him bobby was actually flung out of the plane still strapped into his seat and was found on the runway strapped in his seat dazed by a couple of the players and, and people that rushed out there he was lying in a munich hospital bed with his head covered in swathed in bandages and he grabbed a passing hack there was a local uh, journalist and he passed that uh, he grabbed the hack and said look will you get a message to my mother will you get a message to my mother and the hack promised that he would and the journal phoned the foreign office in london and said there's a message from bobby he wants his mother to know that he's okay and the foreign office phoned the Ashington police and a policeman went round to the, the Charlton house and the message just said, the message from Bobby, which was written down, just said, all right, see you soon. And that's all it said on the piece of paper. And that's the first indication Sissy had via the foreign office and the local Bobby, having been alerted by the Chronicle, was that that Bobby was all right, that he wasn't one of the dead. But she said, and Bobby told, I, I spoke to Bobby years later, and he said, John, you, you, I just didn't know what to do. He said, all all I kept saying, and, and Sissy said, he just kept saying, why, mother, why? Why has it happened? Why has it happened that these, his best mates had died? Why did it happen that he didn't? Etc. Etc. And one of the guys that died was a player called David Pegg, who was single and about the same age as Bobby, who was single at that time. Uh, and because they were both single and they were both pals, Bob Bobby had gone down to Doncaster, to that's where David Pegg lived with his parents. Had gone down to Doncaster to spend Christmas. Remember, the crash was in the February. He'd spent the Christmas just a couple of months before at David Pegg's house in Doncaster. And then David had come up to Ashington to spend New Year in Ashington with Bobby for the New Year. So they had Christmas and New Year together. And there was David dead. And the other guy who was, he was so, so close. He was close to them all, of course. But he looked up to was Duncan Edwards, who to this day, um, until... His recent illness, he told everybody that was willing to listen that the real star of that Manchester United side was not Bobby Charlton, it was Duncan Edwards, who was a teenager at the time, who said it's the greatest player he ever played with or against. And he was such a, a, a huge, physically robust man that when he died, days, days, days later, in a hospital bed out there, it just sent... Bobby spiraling into a deep depression. And um, he was allowed to stay at home. Matt Busby, the the manager, was like Duncan Edwards lying in a hospital bed. Will he survive? Will he not? Big Duncan didn't. Matt eventually did. Uh, but everybody was just given time off, of course, to recover at their own pace. And there's nothing Sissy could do to get Bobby back to think about going back down to Old Trafford 
to think about playing football again. And she said, I didn't know what to do with him, John. I couldn't do anything with him. I couldn't get through to him. And then I said to Bobby, well, how did it change? What happened to change things for you and get you back on track? And you know what was ironic? And isn't life full of ironic things? The goalkeeper, the guy that came round and visited Bobby and said, you've got to get back on the wheel. You've got to get back on the bike. You, 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 you owe it to the memory of all the boys to help this club and not let it go under, etc. You know who gave him the talk to and convinced him? Ronnie Routledge, the goalkeeper that was taken to Sunderland instead of him was the one that come to the house and talked and talked and perhaps caught Bobby just at the right time and got through to him that the best way he could pay tribute to David Pegg and to Duncan Edwards and to their memories was to go back and play football for Manchester United. And it was incredible. It was one of outlets, wasn't it? It was who destroyed his dream of going to Sunderland, but kept his dream alive with Manchester United. Hmm. Yeah, it's like you said, it's funny how all these stories kind of interlock like a like a bit of a, a jigsaw. And as you say there, Charlton spent a lot of time back at home, you know, kicking a, a ball around with local youths. And then there was a practice match on the on the 25th of February before you returned to action against West Brom. And, you know, it was a slow process, John, Very- but Man United began rebuilding, getting to a couple um, of finals, a loss to the to, to Bolton Wanderers in the FA Cup final, didn't they? And then, um, finally, Sir Bobby Charlton got that winner's medal in 1963, a 3-1 win over Leicester in the FA Cup. I mean, to get back up after that disaster must have taken oh. some inner strength. And then to win, to, to finally win the first medal, I, I, I'm not really sure what, what the emotion would have been. I mean, you would have been happy, but maybe a bit of... I don't want to survive as guilt the right term of phrase. There must have been such a mix of emotions. Oh, I, I mean, honestly, right up until recent years, till till Bobby was suffering with dementia, whenever I spoke to Bobby, you know, when I, and whenever we mentioned Munich in passing, Bobby's eyes would tear up. Bobby's eyes would well up all these years after and everything he'd achieved after Munich winning the European Cup, winning the World Cup, being a Manchester United director, being knighted, everything he did, his eyes would well up with memories of the lads that he lost in that. And the part of the Manchester United rebuild, you know, the North East were very strongly involved in because a couple of, <coughs> Bob Hardestein, a couple of Bishop Auckland players, the wonderful players that won Bishop Auckland the Amateur Cup virtually every year. Bishop Auckland owned the Amateur Cup. And they were amateurs, so they could be transferred quite easily because you weren't professional and you hadn't got etc. etc. And Bob Hardesty and that went down and played for Manchester United immediately after the um, the Munich Air disaster. And Ernie Taylor. Remember Ernie Taylor, who played for Newcastle in the 50s Cup Finals? Uh, the little inside forward who Joe Harvey used to say was the most wonderful footballer he'd ever seen. Joe loved him to death, Joe Little. Um, and he got one England cap against Hungary. It was when the wonderful Hungary side with Pushkas played. And Joe went and stood on the terraces at Wembley 
to watch Ernie Taylor play for England because he said he was the greatest player that he'd ever seen. He went down and helped the old Manchester uh, United recover from the uh, the trauma of Munich. And the amazing thing is, you say, he went on and got those early the early uh, medals with the FA Cup. And by 1966, he's won the World Cup. I mean, you know, it, but for Ronnie Routledge doing what he did in visiting uh, Sissy's house down the back lane in Ashington and convincing Bobby that the best thing to do was to start playing football again, the two famous brothers wouldn't have been together on the Wembley pitch as World Cup winners, Bobby and Jack Chong. And um, that was that was an extra special time. And um, I mean, it was quite emotional. I I just come back um, to the northeast from Fleet Street uh, in 1966 to cover Newcastle United, and I was also given the the Chronicle allowed me to cover all the World Cups and all the Olympic Games which was wonderful. And the first job I did before I covered Newcastle United, because I was back in 66, was cover the World Cup, uh, which ended with England winning it with Bobby and, and, and Jack. And, um, I, you know, during the build-up uh, to the World Cup with Alf Ramsey, um, Sissy was down at Wembley in one of the build-up matches. And she, she was sitting, obviously, like a guest of honour, because... Her two boys were playing for England, for goodness sake. And she heard the Prime Minister, who was Harold Wilson at the time, she heard that Harold Wilson was struggling in this game to win. And, and Harold Wilson muttered to the bloke next to him and said, why on earth didn't the Charles have more bands? Because the two playing for England were playing superbly well and he was thinking of... So she, she leant forward, tapped the Prime Minister on the shoulder and said, uh, Mr. Wilson, if you did let us known, yeah, whoosh, we would have had 11 and we would have called them Charlton United. Um, and Howell just laughed. And uh, that was, in fact, funnily enough, and a lot of people don't realise that, she actually had four sons, you know. Everybody knows the two that became famous, but, they were, but after Jack and Bobby, she had two more, Gordon and Tommy. And neither of them uh, were footballers and neither of them could play um, at all. And it's amazing, isn't it? Two were World Cup quality and the other two couldn't play. Gordon, in fact, when we won the World Cup in 66, <coughs> Gordon Charlton was in the Merchant Navy and his ship was in the Indian Ocean and he was listening because Bobby said to, to Gordon, tell John the story. And they were in the Indian Ocean, and he was listening on the radio in the engine room to the live commentary of the World Cup final with his two brothers playing in it. And when the 90 minutes was up, he was suddenly told that he had to go on duty. So he couldn't listen to extra time to find out what happened with England and with his two brothers. And he said it was only when... A little while later, when the captain come running down shouting, we've won, we've won, did he realise that England had won the, the World Cup. And um, wonderful, wonderful moments. And the two brothers were so close in those days. They'd been close. I mean, Jack was beyond despair over Munich. 
and was absolutely decimated. And then they were so close when they won the World Cup together. And I remember afterwards, after the World Cup, I was invited up to Washington by the local council uh, because there was going to be a, an official reception for the Charlton brothers in Ashington. And I got an invite to go by from the council. And they sent down this yellow Rolls Royce. Can you believe that? A yellow Rolls Royce, open-topped, was sent down to 114 Beatrice Street, which is where Sissy lived. 114 Beatrice Street, this, way, this yellow Rolls Royce pulled up outside of it. The two lads come out and they sat in the back, up high, so they could wave to the crowds. And they, and they slowly, the Rolls Royce went the three quarters of a mile from Beatrice Street to the council offices where the reception was going to be. And um, I went into the reception and the two boys were in and uh, various uh, footballing dignitaries as well as local dignitaries were inside there. Ward Jackie, inevitably, was inside the council officers. Don Revy, who was Jack Charlton's manager at Leeds, was there. And the Manchester United chief scout, Joe Armstrong, the one that had watched Bobby play and said, this lad's going to be a world beater, we've got to sign him. He was present amongst the guests as well. Um, and happy, happy days. And at that stage, after Munich and after the World Cup, Jack and Bobby Charlton were so, so close. Um, they were like blood brothers. Uh, sadly, it wasn't going to stay that way. Yeah, and we will talk uh, about uh, the feud, for want of a better phrase, between the two. But just tell listeners, John, about how Bobby felt when he, he lifted the World Cup. Well, Bobby, uh, I, I talked to, to Jack, who was wonderful to tell the story that involved Bobby. He said, our kid was always blubbing, you know. Wherever he went in life, he was blubbing, which is crying. A, he was one of these emotional guys. He was a blubber, he said, our kid. Um, and if you notice the, the photographs that have emerged of the two brothers on the field after the final whistle of the World Cup, and Big Jack looking like a giraffe, has got his arm around the shoulders of, of Bobby. And Bobby is near to tears. And and Jack said to me, our kid, pack that in. He says, you'll have me crying in a minute. Pack that in. And Bobby just turned to him and he said, you don't realise, big fella, do you? Our lives have changed forever. Our lives have changed forever. That was within minutes of the final whistle going. And it was true. Their lives had changed forever. Both their lives. Um, and, you know, I said to I often wonder, did Jack feel jealous in any way uh, um, of, of his younger brother? Because they might both have been World Cup winners, but there's, there's only one was so much better in the fine arts of the game than the other. And he never was, you know. He took pride in what Bobby was. And he, I said, how would you describe the two years footballers, he said, well, he said, our kid could play the game and I could stop others 
from playing the game. He said, and that was the difference. Our kid could play, I could stop others from playing. Did they ever come across each other in the domestic leagues, you know, Leeds yeah. versus Manchester United? And, and I mean, was there ever, uh, and what was that like when you were watching them play each yeah. other? They played against each other quite a few times. And um, uh, Jack used to just say, Jack used to just go and, and, and see Bobby the day before, talk to him on the phone. And he would just say, Hey, our kid, do yourself a favor. Just keep away from me because uh, if you didn't, I'll have to kick you. And um, I don't know that, that Bobby necessarily took that advice. And I used to say to Jack, Hey, but before you kick Bobby, you had to catch him. Uh, and, and that was a different ball game because it wasn't that he was just quick. It was he was clever. He was clever. Everybody tried to kick Bobby Charlton, the same as they tried to kick Pele, the same as they tried to kick Maradona and Cloyth. The trouble is you've got to catch him first. And um, the amazing thing was, as a, as a footballer, one was so elegant and, and the other was so war of attrition, weren't they? They were very, very different types of players. Um, but the amazing thing with Bobby is, you know, that he, he's always been called a gentleman. Of course he has because of the way he played the game and the fact. Do you know that he was only in his career and he played over 700 times for Manchester United and goodness knows how many times for England and, and for other teams fleetingly at the end of his career. He was only ever booked twice in his whole life and was never red carded, never sent off in the whole of his career and booked twice. And once was a mass booking in the um, World Cup, playing for England against Argentina. Remember when Ramsey called every Argentinian an animal and, and, and stopped Cohen uh, swapping his shirts with one of the players? He wrestled it back off the Argentinian player and gave it to Cohen and told him to get in the dressing room. Um, he was booked in that melee where everybody was booked, but he never got booked. The funny thing is, don't run away with the idea that he was, was little Lord Fontevoy, as he said, when he was a player. And because he wasn't, he was, you talked to all the refs. And I mean, I wrote a book of a couple of the refs and that's it. Bobby Charlton on the field was the biggest moaner you would ever get. He moaned to the referee all match long saying, oh, this is happening and that's happening. And watch him, he's having a go at our goalkeeper. And this is happening. He moaned whose ball it was when I went out for throwing. It was always a Manchester United ball, you know. Even if Bobby kicked it out himself, it was a Manchester United throwing. So he was a huge moaner. Um, but that's all he did. He didn't kick, he moaned. Um, and Jack used to say he made a living out of kicking. Jack made a living out of kicking. And he used to just say to him when they played together, didn't come clo too close to me, our kid. Keep away from me and you'll be all right. Um, don't mind you, when you looked at the Leeds team, there was a few you had to keep away from. Because by Jove, were they a, a tough bunch of cookies from Giles to Bremner to uh, Norman Hunter bites your legs to Alan Clark. The most ferocious centre forward I've ever known is Alan Clark. And he didn't used to get kicked. He used to kick other people. And he was a centre forward. He kicked centre halves. Quite incredible. But um, yeah, the sadness was the two brothers for a long period in the later life, when they weren't players, fell out, and that was a shame. Yeah, indeed. And um, I mean, the, the, there was a book in 2007 which went into detail about 
the the, the feud, um, and uh, you know Bobby Charlton reportedly didn't didn't see his mother um, after 1992 because of the feud. I mean, we don't want to dwell on it on it too long um, because this is no. a you know a, a no. tribute, but it, it it does form part of the story. So John, just just go yes. into a little bit about about what it was about, and I guess how it affected uh, yeah. uh, particularly Bobby, you know, in in, in the long term. Yes, we, as you say, it's a tribute to the footballing genius that was uh, Bobby Charlton. So we don't want to dwell on it, but we can't pretend it didn't happen uh, because it did happen. Uh, there were very different personalities, and I think that become basis of it. Bobby was totally at home with the treasure set. You know, he went to live in Cheshire when he was playing for Manchester United. He'd throw dinner parties. He would send his family away on holidays abroad when he toured with England. He was very comfortable in that style of living. Jack preferred the other style of living. He was a complete Northumbrian. You know, he was he was into fishing and shooting. He loved the country life. Um, he was a different sort of guy. And um, they fell out as brothers because of a difference of opinion over their mum, over Sissy. Um, now, this never, initially, this never made the papers. Um, there was no talk of there being, uh, it, it was peculiar because in those early days, Andrew, it wasn't like today, they, you know, when you've got the social media and everything. You know, within a split second, is is on social media and divulge and whatever and whatever. There was none of that then. It was almost like with the royal family. You know, you never got the Duke of Edinburgh originally, who could be a, a bit of a scallywag with a loose tongue, but you didn't get them all over the papers, and you didn't get this feud. A lot was known behind the scenes. It was only very much later after it happened that it made the papers at all. You know, I mean, in those days, papers didn't disagree. And so it wasn't like Harry and Meghan against their family. You know, it wasn't like that with, with Bobby and, and Jack. But there was a few... Jack was very, very close to his mother. In fact, after they won the World Cup, uh, Jack bought Sissy and Bob a house for them and called it Jules Rimmy, which was the name of the trophy, of course. The World Cup was known as the Jules Rimmy trophy. So he called the house, he bought his mom and dad, the Jules Rimmy. And um, he was very, very close to her. And he fell out with Bob because he felt that Bob spent more time with the treasure set than he did in Ashington and that he didn't quite show his mum what he felt he should have done. And inevitably, Bobby's wife was drawn into it. I was just terribly sad because I loved both of them an awful lot. And as a football fan, adored both of them. Worked in social clubs with both Bobby and Jack doing shows Yonks, time after time after time, significantly, Andrew, never together, always separately. I did gigs with Jack and then I did other gigs with Bobby, but I never did gigs with Bobby and Jack. And this was one of the reasons why I didn't. I mean, the last time I really did anything with Bobby and Jack as a couple 
with the famous thing, This Is Your Life, which um, I'd produced a, a book. I used to work a lot with Jackie Melbourne, who was a dear, 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 dear friend of mine. And I ghosted his book, uh, Jackie Melbourne's Newcastle United Scrapbook. And I ghosted it for, for Jack. And, you know, it was on the first cup and everything that had happened in the life. And I'm so grateful because that book, I suddenly got a phone call when that book came out from uh, This Is Your Life um, officers in London, a researcher called Brian Klein, phoned me up and said, Jack's, this scrapbook has come out. Jack's back in the public eye. We're thinking we could do it. This is your life. Would you be the go-between? Now, the, the thing we have to always watch is that nobody's got to know. The guy whose life it is hasn't got to realise. If he finds out in the build-up, he is a subject of this is your life, it's off. So I had to work very quietly with... Uh, Jackie's missus and with various players to try to get the whole thing on and in the end Mrs Milburn said to me Jack will never go to London this shows what we call in London you, you try to get an excuse to take him to London she says he hates London he won't go to London never I said well take tell me I take him shopping she says oh he hates shopping so he hates shopping, he hates London nuts. So for the first time in the history of the programme, they brought it out of London, put it on it, it in Newcastle, at Time Tease Television Studios, and pretended that it was me and Jackie um, uh, talking about the book, and then out come him and Andrews with the red book. And, and the wonderful thing was that, and I'm so grateful to Jack, because it was 1981 when it came out, and it won me the first ever regional sports writer of the year for Great Britain, the first one that ever was, was held in 1981, and I won it. And and I won it in the main, I think, because I told the story in the Chronicle of the background to This Is Your Life and in everything that went on behind the scenes. And that award is still hanging up in, in my house above my head as I speak to you now, the award I won there. Now, the interesting thing was on that... Um, we to the centerpiece of Jackie's surprise was obviously Bobby and Jack Charlton coming out and being the guests and saying wonderful things about how they'd seen more Jackie in his playing days, etc. etc. There was a host of, of legendary England names there as well, like Stanley Matthews and um, uh, or oh, uh, Billy Wright, who was was uh. War Jackie Skipper. And um, fabulous, fabulous night was had. And Jack said to me afterwards, and I was having a drink with him and the two Charlton boys, he said, thanks, Gibbo. He said, if I'd found out about it, I would never have wanted it and would never have had it. He says, it's one of the best nights I've had in my life. Um, at that stage, the Charltons were still as brothers ought to be. And the only consolation I've got, because they were apart for an awful long time, was just before Jack died, um, they got together, they, uh, they buried the hatchet, not in each other, thankfully, but uh, become friends. I'm not suggesting they were ever as close as they once were, but uh, they became friends again. And Sissy would be delighted about that. And no doubt, bless her, 
if they if she is upstairs and if they are all upstairs, no doubt Sissy is smacking Bobby and Jack's heads together now and saying it's about time you come back together. It's great. Well, okay, now we're back as a family. I would like to think that uh, yes. because it would it it they're a very very special family, not just in Ashington, not just in Northeast, but in the world. Mm. In the world. And, and yeah, and there was that lovely moment as well, the BBC Sports personality in 2008 when Sir Bobby Charlton was was handed the, the, the Lifetime Achievement Award and the BBC managed to get Jack to present it. And if you haven't seen the footage, go on to YouTube and watch it because it is a wonderful moment, especially with the context that John's just explained, to get Jack out presenting it. Um, I think... So Bobby described it as, as it, that he was knocked out to see Jack present him with the war. And it, it is a, it is a lovely moment uh, to watch. Now, obviously, uh, playing career-wise, you know, Sir Bobby Charlton won a host of accolades. Uh, I just want to read through the list of stuff that he won. You've got three first division titles. You have one FA Cup, two runners-up medals, two charity shields, the European Cup, um, which came 10 years after the, the Munich air disaster. Uh, uh, you've got, obviously, the World Cup. Um, and then individually, John, you know, uh, oh. Football of the Year, 65-66. You've got the World Cup Golden Ball in, in, in 1966. You've got the Ballon d'Or in 1966. You know, the, I mean, the list goes on. What what an absolute player. And when you look at the list of honours and individual awards... When I, when I ask you to sum Sir Bobby Charlton up, I think I've just done it reading that list out, really. Yes, you have. Uh, and, you know, it was quite sensational. And young people today, maybe with with the tributes that were paid to Bobby when he died and the tributes that have been paid this week because his funeral was this week. And when you saw the legends that turned out and how many supporters turned out uh, for the funeral... Um, you know, delve into YouTube and find out how good this this guy is because I'm not kidding you when I say a different class to everything. You know what was what was nobody can have everything, or it would seem like that. And I used to have a bit of fun with Jack. I would say to Jack, listen, your kid was a better footballer than you. We know that. There's absolutely no question about that. But there's some consolation for you, Jack. And he said, What's that, Gibbo? I said, you were a better manager than Bob, Bob was. Uh, because Jack had a huge career with the Republic of Ireland as a manager, apart from uh, Middlesbrough, season at Newcastle, of course, Sheffield Wednesday, etc., etc. Um, uh, but the interesting thing, just in passing to mention, he went to Preston North End to become a manager. Um, and he, he went with Nobby Styles. Now you would think, Good gracious me, this is nailed on, isn't it? You've got Nobby Stiles and and uh, Bobby Charlton running Preston North End. It's bound to be a huge success. Not so. Um, it didn't work out. He, I think they were relegated. But the, the amazing thing was that Bobby got out of management and never went back in, resigned in 1975 as manager of Preston, over a transfer of John Bird, who was a centre-half, to Newcastle United. So it was a transfer to Newcastle. Isn't it? It's, it, it, it 
jigsaw, the whole bit just dovetails, and it? it come come all the way back to Newcastle United. It's how Bobby stopped being a manager because they, the directors sold John Bird over his head because the cash was right. And I think Bobby had had enough of management anyway, realised it wasn't for him and just wanted out. And eventually found his way back to his spiritual home at Manchester United as a director and as an ambassador, which he was much more comfortable. You know, they, they often say that some people are too nice to be managers. They're actually too nice because you've got to have some steel in your backbone to become a manager. And two of the people that were too nice to become managers were from the same family. Jackie Milburn was far too nice to be a manager, and, and he showed that when he was at Ipswich Town as a manager following Alf Ramsey and Bobby Charlton was. Uh, Jack Charlton had that steel to be able to be a manager, but it wasn't for Bobby. Um, <clears throat> and really, don't do it. I mean, so many... <clears throat> Forgive me. So many great players didn't become great managers. Stanley Matthews tried it, didn't work. Bobby Moore tried it, didn't work. Um, uh, and Melbourne and Bobby Charlton tried it, didn't work. Um, he went back to the club that was always in his heart and become the epitome of what Manchester United is all about or was all about. Their reputation is getting sullied a little these days, but everything that was good about Manchester United was epitomised in Sir Bobby Charlton. And the wonderful thing is, while that is the club that benefit, benefited the most from, England benefited hugely by winning the World Cup for the one and only time in our history, and he remained ours. He was from here, and nobody can take that away from us. Wherever he went, Bobby Charlton was a Geordie, and weren't we thrilled? The only thing that I am ever sad about was he wasn't a Geordie that played for Newcastle United, but I'll accept that he was a Geordie, and he was one of the greatest players the world has ever seen, not just England. When I put him up there with Maradona, Pele, Cloyth, the world has ever seen. And, um, you know, it was a privilege for me to know both him and Jack. And when will we next get two brothers as good as that? Never mind from our area, from anywhere. That was quite, quite exceptional. And, uh, you know, if there's a comfort in being old, Andrew, it's that you were around to see people like that in the pump. There we go. Couldn't have summed it up better myself. John, it's always a pleasure to hear your tales of a time gone by, and especially when we get to talk about a legend like Sir Bobby Charlton, even in these sad circumstances. To everyone listening, thank you very much for tuning in. Please hit subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and head over to chroniclelive.co.uk for all the latest Newcastle United news. It's been a pleasure for myself and John. We'll catch you guys very soon.